This is Nightlife with Philip Clark on ABC Radio. Joining us on the line uh, for Nightlife News Breakdown is Emily Barrett, Managing Editor of the Saturday Paper. Emily, good evening. Welcome to Nightlife. Good evening, Phil. How are you? Not too bad. A couple of things around. Uh, well, everything's dominated by the Reserve Bank these days, isn't it? The, the Reserve Bank boss, Philip Lowe, has got quite a week in front of him. He's in front of, I think, not one but two appearances at the the Parliament this week in front of parliamentary committees. He's going to be he's going to be asked some pointed questions, I would think, isn't he? Yeah, actually, things aren't looking too good for Philip Lowe this week. I mean, he's had a pretty bad start. He's got Senate estimates testimony on Wednesday. And then he has to do a second testimony on, on Friday uh, to the House of Reps. And it's, it's not a great position to be in just because he's got increased accusations now of a lack of transparency. And these aren't altogether unreasonable. Um, he's, uh, he's accused of basically having kind of given the game away a little bit to a bunch of investment bankers um, where he was talking to the, uh, the hosts, Baron and Joey, on Thursday of last week. And uh, unfortunately, there's there's no transcript of this discussion and there's no recording, so we can't really verify exactly what was said, but it certainly moved the market. Yeah. Do, <laughs> I mean, people are making a bit of this. Can you just explain it for listeners because they may not understand what's going on here? We don't know what was said at that meeting, do we? Well, we've got some sort of reports that give us sort of an outline of what he was talking about. And, you know, it's it's kind of, it's sort of beggars belief that a central banker would say this, but still, he um, he did say that he well he was musing on the idea of interest rates in Australia going as high as they have in the US. Um, now, in the US, interest rates are sort of tipped to top five percent, mm. and that's not a level that was contemplated here. Uh, certainly not by anyone in the market, and not by anyone at the bank you know, uh, other than this statement. Um, now, obviously, we don't know how directly he said that. It's possible that this is, you know, a bit of speculation and perhaps he's feeling a little bit uh, hard done by at this point. We can't really tell. But uh, but it certainly did move the market because the first thing, of course, that happens then is people come back from their lunch and start trading on the idea that interest rates might go that high. So that means there's a huge bond sell-off and it did mean that it pushed interest rates here on uh, short-term yields up by quite a bit. Um, now, that's bad in a few ways. It raises borrowing costs for people and in a circumstance where they didn't actually have any warning that that was going to happen. Mm. Um, so what turned out to be sort of could have been an offhand comment to fill those, but, um, but it's really had some consequences and not the least of which is that he's going to have to face some discussion now with a review currently underway and reporting to Jim Chalmers on March 31st um, about how he's managing interest rates. And he's already got the problem to face of, you know, those accusations of having moved way too late to start raising interest rates when inflation was taking off. Mm. Yes, it's, uh, <laughs> it's interesting because no, no one's suggesting that Philip Lowe's done anything wrong here because, after all, no. it's, not, it's not at all remarkable that Philip Lowe would have closed-door meetings with people in the markets. He does. He does. Yeah, that's he's, right. He's, yeah. The Reserve Bank governor speaks to a lot of people. Including, well, people, the, yeah. including people in the market, what they make of those conversations, I suppose, is up to them. I mean, there is, the, the trouble is the atmosphere is so fevered here, isn't there, that there's some yeah. suggestion that uh, without yeah. any foundation, it's got to be said, that Philip Lowe uh, let something slip. Well, and that's the problem really is it comes back to that issue of transparency, which he's vulnerable to at this point because um, 
typically, as, uh, as things have run at least in the last few years, there's a national press club address by the governor um, after the first meeting or in the lead-up to the first meeting of the year. And this is something that he forewent this year because he was doing, or presumably because mm. he was doing the estimates testimony. Um, but that unfortunately means that he was giving um, a speech to some private bankers um, before, sort of between the announcement of the interest rate hike and before the official statement came out on Friday of, that gave a little bit more colour around that interest rate hike. So it does sort of look as if um, he gave a little bit more information to a private sitting than he gave publicly, mm. um, which, you know, whether or not that's a fair statement is, is unclear, but it, it means that there are, there's a reasonable point to make in saying, why isn't press allowed into these kinds of reporting, um, to report out these kinds of speeches? That's, that's one thing. Um, and why would you, you know, not give more information when you have the chance to? So in the US, um, obviously, Jerome Powell gives a, a press conference after almost every single meeting um, in which he does sort of in real time describe the thinking and the deliberations be behind each rate move and each, you know, sort of each plan. Um, now, the central bankers are famously opaque. Mm. Um, they're not, you know, they're not exactly standing up there to say exactly what they want to do because the market would front run that and, um, and that's not helpful either in terms of achieving their goals. You know, Alan Greenspan used to say, you know, if you, if you think you've understood what I've said, then you've, uh, or if you think you've, I've been clear, then you must have misunderstood what I said. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, it does, yeah. it does, that's right. It does, it does ask a question again fairly pertinently as to why, that's right, the Reserve Bank Governor here doesn't give a monthly press conference, it must be said. Uh, yeah. Mm, he can't be, yes, I mean, at the weekend I note that the, the Treasurer uh, was not saying, yes, he's safe in his job. He wasn't saying he wasn't, but his job is up for renewal, I think, in September this year, yeah. isn't it? Uh, you kind of get a feeling that the government's not going to give him another couple of years. It's it's not looking great, um, but that doesn't mean that, I mean, it's too, too early. And Jim Chalmers has certainly said many times over, you know, this is an independent central bank, that's very important. And, uh, and he's certainly not prepared to give any signals at this point about what his thinking is. But it's, it's hard to say. I mean, it does seem to me, at least having look at, looked at what Anthony Albanese has been saying um, about, uh, about Philip Lowe, you know, at the outset, um, that, you know, he was supported. And it seems as if there's a slight nuanced shift to a lot more guarded conversation around this. Um, and obviously, uh, the, you know, Jim Chalmers doesn't want to give anything away, doesn't want to front run anything. But, um, you know, there's a couple of reasons why mm. Philip Lowe probably isn't looking like the best candidate for renewal at this mm. point. Emily Barrett's with us, managing editor of the Saturday paper on uh, Nightlife News Breakdown. Moving on to announcements in the parliament today, the federal government released its Closing the Gap impl implementation plan today on the 15th anniversary of the then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd's historic apology to the stolen generations. A few things coming out of this today. One of them was, of course, Peter Dutton himself apologising for not being around in the Parliament when the apology was first made. I apologise for my actions, and the Prime Minister's frequently able to point it out uh, that I didn't attend the chamber for the apology 15 years ago. 
I've apologised for that in the past, and I repeat that apology again today. In 2008, I'd been out of the Queensland Police Force for about nine years, and I was still, and probably truthfully to this day, live with those images of turning up to domestic violence incidences where Indigenous women and children had suffered physical abuse, certainly mental abuse. I remember clearly attending Palm Island where I brought back the body of an Indigenous woman in a body bag who had been thrust off a cliff to her death. And I remember thinking at the time that those incidences were still occurring on a daily basis in 2008. And the judgment that I formed was that if we were to make an apology, it needed to be at a time when we had addressed and we had curbed that violence and those incidences. I failed to grasp at the time the symbolic significance to the stolen generation of the apology. Mm. That was Mr Dutton, the opposition leader today. And this is former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd speaking at an event at Parliament House in in, uh, Canberra this morning to mark that 15th anniversary. Constitutional recognition and the national advisory body that will be the voice are two sides of the same coin. And the currency of which that coin is part is the continuing national mission we all support and share in this place. The realisation one day of a fully recognised Australia. A fully reconciled Australia. A fully united Australia. There is a further reason for this referendum to succeed. As with the apology, our Indigenous brothers and sisters have requested it. The Uluru Statement commands our respect. It is, as its authors wrote, a statement from the heart. And given what Indigenous Australians have been through across the long centuries since European settlement first began, are we now to be so hard of heart that we simply ignore it? Mm. Mr Dutton said, well, people who aren't on board uh, shouldn't be described as hard-hearted. But he is in a situation here, isn't he? He missed the moment the first time round. Does he want to miss the moment the second time round? Yeah, and uh, Linda Burney was making the statement today that really um, this is the uh, the kind of um, was well, it's not a helpful attitude, and it's a it's a it's a bad legacy to have in this sense because it strikes that kind of what you would say is uh, an insensitive approach. To, to the voice is uh, is missing the really the main point, and it's a point he's making himself about you know the sorts of things that the closing the gap report is highlighting. You have to take a holistic approach to this, surely, and to understand. I mean, to fail to understand what it would have meant to Indigenous people to have an apology just seems. Uh, what's well, a strange statement to make. But anyway, I, th- I think when we look at the sorts of things that the closing gap, the gap report is highlighting, it's it's really shocking. It goes beyond um, community violence and alcohol-related issues. It goes into things like, I think, what Anthony Albanese was describing as an intergenerational uh, problem. Of If you even just look at the clean water provisions that were highlighted by this report um, that show that um, there, are, there is 420 million has been devoted in a new plan, of which 150 million over four years is supposed to create the infrastructure for safe drinking water. I mean, if, you think, if you think about it, it's, it's, it's ludicrous, isn't it? For 15 years we've been talking about 
you know, uh, we've had an apology. But this closing the gap report's been issued uh, to Parliament regularly since then, and we're still talking mm. about uh, a tap that has clean water. Uh, it's, well, it's, and it's, you know, it's, as, I mean, yeah. many people would say, "What on earth have you been doing?" As as Linda Burney pointed out last year, there was a report into safe drinking water for Indigenous communities, and it found that a minimum uh, investment of around two point two billion was going to be needed. Um, to address sort of the high levels of uranium and arsenic and fluoride and nitrate in drinking water. Um, and 500 First Nations communities weren't even having regular testing. So it's, these are the sorts of issues that go into how, a, how holistic a plan needs to be to close the gap and how important in, in, in that very specific way the voice is to identifying and holding to account the sorts of problems that Indigenous communities are facing um, you know, all mm. the time. Mm. Yes, indeed. And more, well, not more importantly, Emily, but more puzzlingly, and I'm happy you can solve this for me, uh, there are mysterious flying objects. Not since the excitement of UFOs have we seen such a buzz. And we've uh, shot down one, well, the US have shot down one, not one, but two spy balloons. No, well, hang on, one balloon and then one object, which mysteriously the US won't even say what it is, other than it yeah. seemed to be... <laughs> Hexa- what was it? Flat and hexagonal? Well, there's a, there's a hexagonal one and there's a cylindrical one. There I mean, are now four. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it's uh-huh. really, it, it's like a, it's, that's right, it's, a, it's, like, a, it's well, like some sort of black comedy, isn't it? It, it, show, it shows the wisdom of Donald Trump who always said that, you know, when COVID hit, if you don't do the testing, you don't have any problem. And now the uh, US has started to look a little bit more carefully at the skies since that first um, alleged weather balloon um, that was considered to be perhaps a Chinese spying balloon was shot down um, off the coast of, uh, I believe it's South Carolina. Um, And so they opened up their filters a little bit and looked at the skies and they've now found that since then three other flying objects um, that are of, of unknown provenance because China has only claimed responsibility for one, the first one. That was their weather, so now, that was their weather balloon in all fairness, wasn't it? <laughs> that's, well, yes. Uh, officially, <laughs> it's just that it was carrying an undercarriage the size of three buses of technology. Um, but, yes, yeah, so this has actually raised a lot of questions because there's been a US State Department official has since said that, um, they've, that China has apparently floated these balloons over 40 countries and across Five continents. So Australia is now asking questions. We've got uh, questions asked of ASIO to try and look into this. Were we aware of any mm. uh, incursions into Australian airspace? So it's going to be, well, I mean, the, the real world situation that has obviously unfolded very quickly after that initial um, weather balloon sh- being shot down was Anthony Blinken calling off his trip to China. Mm. So there are, you know, some diplomatic consequences to come from this. Hard, um, hard to take, hard, I mean, I suppose we ought to take it seriously, but really they're not asking us to take it seriously, are they? <laughs> That's <laughs> right. It's a little oh, hard to oh, mention oh. us guys full of it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Citizens Balloon Watch, uh, wait for the announcement. It'll be, <laughs> it'll be coming your way soon. Emily Barrett, terrific to talk with you. Thank you. Take care, Todd. Cheers. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.